Hey everyone and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen, and my next guest, she has recently released a new book in the popular Twin Cities Mystery series. This is called When the House Burns. Uh, it has a bit of a connection to the recent COVID pandemic impact on housing, so definitely a very like relatable topic. Author Priscilla Patton joins me. Priscilla, welcome to the show. It's great talking to you. Well, thank you, and I'm glad to be here today. All right. All right. So I want to start by just going back to when you were uh, released uh, the first book in the series, Where Privacy Dies. Did you always mean for this to be a series? Well, when I started writing mysteries, I was approaching retirement age. I was easing out of college teaching, and my writing had been quite academic, except for a children's book. And I think if you'd asked me um, when I was 20, when I was 30, when I was 40, are you going to write a mystery? I would have said, I can't do that plot. So um, and I, I was very slow with that first one. It really took me five years from rough conception. I wasn't writing that whole time. I was smart enough to know that I was dumb about some things. So I took classes from this wonderful institution in the Twin Cities the Loft Writing Center and a great Minnesota writer, David Housewright, taught that and I got the, the beginnings there. So I have to admit I was influenced by series, including very remotely John Sanford's Prairie series, which uh, Luke, his Lucas Davenport character is a member of or works for the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, which is like a state version of the FBI, the BCA. I referenced that in my books. That's why I mentioned that. So, um, and I had detectives, Eric Jansen and Deb Metzger. I invented an agency for them, Greater Metro, which is sort of like the bastard offspring of the BCA. I didn't want to be sued by a real agency. So I had sort of series in mind, including um, some British series or, or series set in Britain, like P.D. James with her uh, Adam Dalgleish series, Elizabeth George with her Inspector Lindley Barbara Behavior series. Also, uh, my husband and I are both fans of the Nero Wolf series, uh, written from the 1930s to the 1960s by Rex Stout. Um, a lot of those had duos in them. But I just thought I was so lucky to get through one book that when I talked to the acquisition editor, I had that moment, and here it helps if you've seen the movie Ghostbusters with Bill Murray. There's one moment where they're being confronted by the pixie demon or and she says are you a god and it was like is this a series and i said yes without having any idea for the second book at all so you know i thought well this will make it a series i've committed myself i've jumped off the plank hey as long as you write at least two books you've uh, uh, you've done a series right and i'm on to three so nice what happened when you decided to do another book? Did you have to really uh, dig into the first book to make sure that everything was consistent? Yes, and a lot of writers keep what they call a Bible, or you might call it an index. And I have a, a rough one. And yes, I do have to re remember uh, things. I think there's a lot of anxiety with writing what they call the sophomore book. It's like, you did it once, but can you do it again? And my memory is, I can't vouch for this as fact, that I was having a lot of anxiety about, that's fact. 
that I was listening to various writers online, including the great Louise Penny with her Inspector Gamache series set in Quebec. And I believe she said something like, either she did go to therapy or she wanted to go to therapy when she started her second book because there's just such a anxiety that you couldn't repeat the performance. And I didn't go to therapy, but just remembering that it felt like that for other writers was actually the biggest help I got. And then you just had to plunge in. Um, it And it took quite a few rewrites for that second book too, because I got very involved with the new characters and sort of drifted away from my detectives. So I had to sort of write them back in, though they end up dominating as they should. But it it's, um, you know, a series has advantages because I found with the third one that I had set the groundwork. I, I knew in some ways how to move ahead. But then you have to keep it fresh. You can't repeat the same jokes. Oh, so, oh yeah. That, that, I think, has to be the hardest thing. Like, okay, we have a new book. Is it different enough from the first two that right. no one's going to say, oh, you're just rehashing book two or this part from book one? Yeah, and it is challenging because people like series because they want to see Sherlock Holmes explain things to Watson or they want, um, you know, uh, Archie Goodwin to kind of be snarky or Nero Wolf, et cetera. So in a way, they're looking for that scene. But you don't want it to be too formulaic. And that's where an editor and beta readers help. Mm -hmm. And usually I find just having different, because I'm not doing one long plot like uh, Game of Thrones or anything like that. You know, each, each book has its own resolution. And each book has, there's are recurring characters from the workplace and with the detectives. But each book has its own characters who are involved or touched by the crime. And that that helps um, because they're you created a different kind of character for the detective, you know, Eric or Deb to respond to. That's really curious because I had read in the press release that this is a standalone book. Uh, it is part of a series, but it's not connected to the other two books besides our characters. That being said, I was curious if I were to read When the House Burns and not read the first two, would there be any blank spots that I'd be like, wait, what are they referring to? Not really. Um, you won't know all the history, but you can guess at it. Like any author, I'll say, well, of course, you want to read all of them. It's a much richer experience. You know, of course it is because, um, you know, you can't do meet cute or meet snarky too many times. I mean, in the book three, the detectives have already met. So you don't have that, oh my gosh, this is my new partner. I'm going to fall through the floor. Um, you can't do that again, but you can do other things. So it, it is a little tricky, but I really wanted to write them as standalones because, and actually I think uh, the pandemic helped bring this home. You don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know what other people have access to. So I just wanted to make it uh, more approachable for the reader. And some readers may like some topics better than the others. I mean, my husband is a big support and big fan. Um, he, but I think he slightly prefers When the House Burns to the one before because he really likes one of the women characters in it. Where some of my other readers might like the one before because there's an 18 year old in peril and 
you know, he just like the sexy young widow real estate agent better. What can I say? So you like to have a variety of characters in different books. And, you know, of course, some are going to be appeal more to some readers than the others. Mm -hmm. uh, book two, Should Grace Scale, has a lot about music in it. Uh, when the House Burns has a lot about real estate in it. So both very sexy topics, of course. And why the choice to include include real estate as one of the topics of the book? When I started book three, I had a different topic in mind, in which I may still use at some point. But then the shutdown happened. COVID. We had the stay-at-home order. We were at home. Um, meanwhile, I had young relatives in the Twin Cities who were trying to get their first house, and they couldn't do it, well, partly because of the shutdown, but also they were outbid every time. Uh, homelessness made the news because how do you protect the homeless during the pandemic? You can't just move them in with everybody because there's the, you know, early on, we just didn't know what the exposure was. And then a couple of other things happened. One is the house I was in was, was actually owned by the college where I used to work and where my husband still works. Developed, it was planned to be torn down in two years anyway, to put up a dorm. We were going to be off, out by then, anyway. But during the shutdown, I smelled something funny. And it turned out there was a toxic basement. And we had to move right away. And fortunately, we were privileged enough or we had prepared enough that we were already fixing up a retirement home. So we were able to go there. But um, it, was, it was rough to have to move all of a sudden. And I mentioned this, it was moving is always traumatic. Moving's traumatic when you have to do it all of a sudden. Moving's traumatic when you have to really downsize as we did. And also I think the day we moved or the day we were packing was the day that George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. Now, I do not mention his name in the book. I didn't really feel I had the right to, but I do mention the kill killings of people of color by the police because, um, that's something my detectives would have on their mind and that would be upsetting them or upsetting people to meet them. So it's still a funny book, but to get to back that back to the, how did I get to housing? It just became sort of an obsession. We had to find new housing. Our young relatives had to find new housing. Our, our adult children were having housing troubles. As I said, I've worked with some nonprofit agencies and they were very worried. So it became an obsession because of all the things that you were dealing with, with your housing and everyone else's, did you become kind of an expert on the topic or did you have to do a lot of research to kind of get all the ins and outs? I did do, I, um, I recently wrote an article where I talk about, I do three kinds of research. One is the in-depth research, which is a little bit like journalistic or academic research. The other is mostly site-based research or interviews if I can get them. I couldn't get them during COVID. And the other is as needed research, which is the last one is the easiest to describe. You've written a draft of your book, maybe even two drafts. And you think, I don't know what this place looks like. And you go, or, huh, I want to see an Indian restaurant. I think I really need to go and try the menu. Um, but I usually, I did read early on and uh, right at the beginning of the shutdown, a book called Eviction by I think the writer is Matthew Desmond. It appeared as a series of New Yorker articles. 
but it's on real case histories of homelessness or people who were evicted in Milwaukee. That actually doesn't get mentioned much, but it gave me insight because it was case histories of the kind of people who were homeless or, or unhoused, as they say, um, and it's quite a variety. I'd had some relatives who before the shutdown had volunteered at an encampment and they had talked a little bit about that. Um, I couldn't really talk to anybody involved in the Twin Cities because they were stretched to the limits trying to find people housing, but they referred me to a couple of websites and a couple of wonderful documentaries. And I admit that there's a couple of scenes at an encampment and the physical details are taken from a homeless, uh, an encampment that I drove by and also some of these documentaries that showed what this places actually looked like. Wow. Um, how about from the law enforcement side of things? Were you able to talk to people, get a good idea as to how these uh, cases work? I was very fortunate in that I'm a member of the Twin Cities chapter of the national organization Sisters in Crime. There are a lot of brothers in Sisters in Crime, but that's the organization that I believe was founded by the Chicago crime writer, Sarah Paretsky, back in the 90s, I think, um, to help promote. That, that, that was back in the days when male crime writers got a lot of reviews, female crime writers hardly any. That's not the circumstance anymore, partly because of organizations like this. But my local chapter decided to forge ahead with Zoom meetings. And very fortunately me, they had an arson investigator come on. And they also had a liaison who worked uh, with unhomed in individuals in the sheriff's department in Ramsey County, which is where St. Paul is. So even though I didn't do one-on-one -on -one interviews, I did attend those sessions and learned quite a bit. Hmm. Okay. One thing I'm really curious about then, because I know that there's a, that there's a scene where uh, Jansen is trapped in an abandoned house as Metzger hunts, uh, hunts for a sharpshooter. How'd you learn that stuff? <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time on Zillow, Realtor.com, Niche.com. Niche.com is a place that also gives ratings for crime in the neighborhood and what demographic lives there. So it's kind of demographic search, but um, I looked at a lot of, uh, houses online. One of them I looked at was a beautiful old mission style, two-story mission style house with a dark wood wainscoting on the stairway. But it also had painted above the wainscoting a dragon. And it turned out to be a mural that went all the way up the stairs and Wonder Woman was battling with the dragon at the top of the stairs. I had to put that in. I don't. I assume that house eventually sold. I don't know what the new owners do with the mural. I would have bought it for the mural. Yeah, exactly. I mean, keep the mural. Thing. Jeez, don't don't paint over it. Right. And, you know, uh, realtors, these sites, they, they glamorize the houses some, but some can't be that glamorized. And I saw a lot of funky basements. And I'd been in some funky basements in my time. One of them had a, an abandoned uh, deer mount, a deer head, you know, with, with the antlers and all. Also, I. With Zooming, again, I belong to these organizations, these nonprofits, and there's some law enforcement individuals. There's an individual I'll call Fun Sheriff, who in his office, this was before the shutdown at Christmas time, he had an ant a deer mount and he had Christmas lights on it, on the antlers. And I sort of combined what I saw online in this horrible basement with 
the Christmas lights on the deer mount because I thought somehow he's got to make use of those antlers. Um, the other thing is you're talking about housing. So I mentioned already that I had to move out of this house fast, but a dorm was going to go there. And it, because that house had to go down, construction started early. And construction was one of those things that was ongoing during the shutdown. And I was able to get a tour of the construction site uh, when it was in its very early muddy stages. And the construction site is not all the one that's in the book, but uh, I did get to see one of these giant cranes and that are 160 feet tall. And I got to see what the, the you know, the manager's pod looks like where he has all the punch boards and everything. So I was able to do that site visit where I used to live. It was now a big pit in the ground with a giant crane. I swear, research for a book is, it sounds like the most fun thing in the world, but it also sounds like a rabbit hole that you're just never getting out of. Yes, and I, maybe because I was an academic, I have to be careful about that because I can go too far. And, and you should always realize that not all your research will make it into the book. It's more that you feel you can write about it believably, that you have enough authority that you can write about it. I know with a book right before this one, Should Grace Fail, there are drug addicts and alcoholics in it or, or people trying to recover or stay away from those addictions. And I had learned a lot about um, babies with fetal alcohol syndrome and various drug, you know, the mother had been using drugs while pregnant, which there's a lot of things going on there that, you know, I thought this has to be in the book, but no, it didn't fit the story. It was an important thing to know, but it wasn't part of the story I was telling. Mm -hmm. All right, then let's talk about the story now, because in this new book, set amidst the environment of the volatile real, uh, real estate market, this is a complicated story. here. It's not, it's not just, okay, victim's dead, we find the murderer at the end. You've got all kinds of different suspects and twists and turns here. So my question to you is, did you have to really carefully plot out the story Yes, and I have with all three. Um, as I said earlier, if you'd asked me once upon a time, could I ever write a mystery? I said, oh, I could never plot. Well, it turns out when I do plot, they get awfully twisty. I, I think I'm not a very linear thinker. Um, and often I, when I write first drafts, they're maybe not even first drafts, they're more the story of the characters who are involved. And I think, what kind of problem would that character have? So that's where a lot of the subplots start to develop, but then the subplots merge with the, with the main plots. Getting through that first draft is a challenge for me because I'm not, you know, there's the term in writing, you may have heard it, pantsers, meaning people who write by the seat of their pants versus plotters. Though a lot of people call themselves plantsers, or I like the term builder, where you sort of maybe have a premise and you maybe have somewhat of an outline, but you sort of go back and forth. Um, I have to admit, I got stuck on my plot where a lot of people get stuck, which is about two thirds of the way through. And if you think of books you've read, movies, even television show, at that two thirds or three quarter mark, there has to be a big turn. There has to be some kind of disaster. The things have to start coming, they have to fall apart completely so they can start coming back together. 
And a lot of people can write up to that point, set everything up, but then like, oh, how do I make stuff happen? Because some magic has, and sometimes you'll notice books where you think, what happened there? How do they suddenly know that? Um, but that's when I did some as needed research. I thought, well, I'll go do a little more. I, I found out some from a construction person, some more about arson and what on a construction site might cause arson. Um, but I went back to do a little more Google research and I came across an article in the Harvard Business Review of all places that gave me a whole new angle. And I can't say more about it because it would be a spoiler. But I sometimes do have to do just in time research there. And I think with my first book, I wrote the ending and then had to figure out, well, how did I get there? Um, there's a lot of reverse engineering. Mm. When you're writing your books, do you usually start with the ending? Well, with the very first one, with the setting. Right now, I'm in our to-be retirement home, which is actually in Wisconsin, looking at Minnesota across the Mississippi River. And I look at wetlands, and I thought, and I think when I was first starting of a mystery, I thought, I had the detectives, and I thought, where would they find a body? And I'm looking, I said, well, I'm looking at wetlands. And there's a lot of them. They're, they're right in they're right next to the major highways in Minneapolis and St. Paul because of the Mississippi and Minnesota rivers coming through there. So that was one way I started. I think I often do have, um, I have the murder victim pretty right away or almost right away. Um, and in this case, it was, it is an adulterous woman, but she is a realtor, a real estate agent. Um, so, did someone lure her to this empty house as a potential client? Does her adultery have anything at all to do with it? And who was she cheating? I and mean, we know who her estranged husband is, but who was the other part of the equation? Mm. So I usually do know the murder victim. And should Grace fail, it was a, a disgraced policeman in a dumpster, probably because some bodies have been found in dumpsters. And, and when the house burns, you know, I went for the non-routine, a very safe suburb and a middle-class house. And there's a middle-class woman on the lawn, not moving. Great opening. I like that. I like that. You had asked me if you if I would like to read some earlier. Would you like me to do that now? Because yeah. I can read you that scene. Let's go for it. Yeah, let's do it. Um, when the book opens... You have detected Deb Metzger herself, who's tall, athletic, in her 30s, and lesbian, homeless, because she'd been bouncing around sublets, and that came to an end. So she's been house hunting desperately, but then she's called to a crime scene. And I'm going to read the introduction to that crime scene. And this is actually, you see Eric Jansen first, but she'll show up in a minute. So here's the introduction to the crime scene. The rain became heavy and sheeted across the St. Louis Park neighborhood of small bungalows maximized by trendy remodels. Lawn-proud residents had cultivated their postage stamp into a collector's item, but the flowers had gone to seed and frost blackened the leaves. It's October. Detective Jansen could hail from the North Sea with his chiseled bones set against the elements. Although his Viking forebears lacked his impermeable yellow rain gear and extra tough boots, he squished across the yard to a plain house decorated by a 
for sale sign. The crime scene team had already constructed a tent around the victim in the driveway, which sloped down to the road, and he tramped up the slope. When Eric had called Deb Metzger, she knew of the body because the patrol officer had called the agent listed on the sign, and Deb chanced to be with that agent. Deb chanced to be in many unexpected places. If theirs was a yin-yang relationship, both yinned when one of them should have yanged. He could get combat pay for working with act first, think later, Deb. Eric steps away from the tent, lurched back when it burst with light and the tree above caught fire. He'd been tricked by an illusion. A tech had switched on portable lights inside the tent, which gave the maple leaves above a lurid gleam. Blue absorbent snakes hugged the tent's rim, but the crime scene within had already been well rinsed. By the time a dog walker had spotted the body this morning, the rain had diluted the blood into riblets and the CSI team couldn't risk losing more evidence. Eric could see down the street to a median and beyond that, State Highway 7, which dissected St. Louis Park as it ran west to Minnetonka. Beyond the lane stood a Coles, with a noisy highway and mall nearby. Neighbors might not be aroused by a sudden pop or car squeal occurring on a dreary Thursday night. By the time their brains processed the unfamiliar sound, the return quiet quelled any suspicions. A St. Louis patrol officer in a black flicker and patrol cap rocked from one foot to the other by the tent flap. He was short, and when he tilted his head back to greet Eric, water ran around his ears. He spoke up to be heard over the precipitation hitting the tent. You're Detective Jansen, right? I heard you're a marathoner. I can see that. I'm Officer Dave Bremer. Bremer was young enough to be a recent academy graduate and green enough to turn way-faced from the double shock of cold rain and a corpse. Yes, good to meet you. I'm waiting on my partner, Detective Metzger. She's experienced with domestic scenarios, if that's what this is. Sure, med techs are minutes away. The photographer is in there with the um, woman. We called you GMET guys because we're overloaded at the moment and don't handle much homicide here. CLP's, SLP's murder rate is 0%. Eric smiled, was zero. Still zero if you round down. Bremer spoke to his phone. Divide one by 49,000. See, he held the wet screen to Eric. Hmm, two thousandths of a percent of your population. Still, she counts as a full person in need of justice. Do you know her name? Is she the owner of the house? The owner was a man in his 80s who died a few months ago and family put it up for sale. The realty office is checking yesterday's showing appointments. The woman, the decedent, could be an agent or prospective buyer. She, the decedent, is in a down jacket, not waterproof. So the killing likely happened last night before the rain. Nothing like a purse around. My first impression is that she was shot from about six feet away, possibly by a nine millimeter bullet from a small pistol. You have a good eye, Bremer. Well, I'm glad GMAT could send you. I don't hear much about you guys. I called the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension first. Their special agents are in so much demand, nobody could come. The BCA receptionist said you guys were the adequate alternative. Eric controlled another smile. Greater Metro Chief Ebling would prefer a label like performance-driven professionals to adequate alternative. The car door slammed across the street. Deb Metzger loomed up from her Prius, donned like Bremer in black rain gear, and splashed forward, talking nonstop. What's with the yellow, partner? You a school crossing guard? Not since I was 10, Eric answered. Hey there, St. Louis Park dude. I'm Deb Metzger. Don't let partner fool you with his blank face. He's remembering everything, including your hat size. I'm not as tall as I look, 
not as scary either. That rendered Officer Bremer speechless. This is Officer Bremer, Eric filled in. Deb extended her hand and Bremer recovered by running on. Yeah, Dave Bremer here, SOP, obviously. You're funny, huh? Nice to meet you, Metzger, Deb. From what I saw, I'd say our Vic here was shot at a six foot distance, no shell casing found. I'm thinking the shooter used a lightweight handgun like a Springfield XDS, easy to conceal, great little pistol. I just bought one for my girlfriend. I'm about to propose. I thought I'd pop the question and offer the Springfield. I don't have the ring yet. The Springfield XD is a great model for competition, reliable. Think she'll like it? This rendered the detective speechless. The falling rain accentuated their silence until Eric uttered, you must love each other very much. Deb shot Eric one of her looks. It sounds a great, Dave. I'm no expert at proposals, believe me, but I think the rings should come first. You can propose at a special place like a gun range, but you have to bring the romance. Not that a gun range isn't romantic. Eric broke in. The med techs are here. A relief. This is unreal how Bremer linked guns and love in proximity to a woman killed with a bullet. Wow. It's a great scene. Now, we talked earlier about uh, Deb Metzger, about you know who she is and her character. But tell us a little more about Eric Jansen. And as kind of a follow-up, how do these two get along? Well... Both of them are tall, athletic, and in their 30s, and both are attracted to women. So they have that in common. That was kind of an odd thing to have in common. Um, Eric Jansen actually came to me first. He's a bit, I was playing with a stereotype a bit, the noir stereotype of the rather silent, tall, strong, silent guy. The, um, you know, he's a runner, uh, perhaps more addicted to running than alcohol. Um, but I played with a stereotype, too, because on one hand, he's tall, reserved, broody, a little snarky, but he was also raised in Iowa. And um, I'm giving away a little bit from the first book here. But when Deb first pressures him, when they first meet, she says, well, how do the likes of you get into crime solving? And he says, surrounded by goodness, I ran to crime. And you find out he was raised by preachers and teachers in Iowa. And, you know, um, that's a, and he has a very supportive family, but, you know, he was ready for something a little different than preaching and teaching. So um, they, they often butt heads. Uh, they really had to struggle to get along in the first book, but it's improved over time. But in this one, when the house burns, they've learned how to use each other's strengths a little bit better. But sometimes that puts him in an awkward position because Eric has realized that Deb can throw people a little faster uh, just because she has a very eccentric way of thinking and she talks fast. And, and when they meet a woman he's supposed to interview and he sees how quiet and conforming she is, she's only going to be a nice, pleasant Midwest woman. And he's got too much reserve. He suddenly says, and now my partner, Deb, will talk to you. And she's like, I'm going to strangle you. I'm not prepared for this. So, um, and they, they kind of go back and forth a little bit. Um, so it's a little testy, but what most readers really like about the series is the give and take between them. And I've always liked uh, mysteries where there's witty repartee and, you know, uh, the Nero Wolf series was like that a lot of the you know, the give and take between the two detectives is important. Um, one thing I'll mention now, and I don't know what you found out from other writers, is the plot is important. 
who did it is important. But what most people take away from books is how did it make them feel? Did it make them, was it entertaining? Did it move them? Um, and I don't usually say, well, sometimes they'll say that was a very twisty ending. I heard that particularly with the first book. But often they say, those detectives, they're kind of crazy. Um, you know, that's sort of what they remember is the characters. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I also want to ask, now that we're on to book three, do you feel like your writing style has really evolved over this time? Maybe. <laughs> you know, I think that every book is a challenge. And you do have to be careful not to fall into too habitual rhythms. My style leans a little literary because that was my background. I think essentially what that means is I sometimes have long sentences. Not too long, but um, but there's a lot of dialogue, too, and a lot of the dialogue is quick. Um, I tend, there often is an undercurrent of satire, and I hope you heard that in the scene I read. Um, both what, how do officers distract themselves from a dead body at the scene, and um, just the conventions of crime writing itself, you know, detectives and officers are supposed to know about bullets and guns and they do in this scene but with a slightly different take hmm. so i think i have that sort of uh slightly undercutting sensibility in many of the scenes not all by any means uh some of my particularly with the second book a lot of reviewers pointed to the seriousness of the topics but I hope I leaven that with some of the humor and satire. So I'm not, my books are not a slow read by any means, but they wouldn't read probably as fast as say um, an all action book. Okay. Now this balance with um, the humor and the seriousness, how do you, how do you uh, reach that? Well, partly I go to my influences, both in the crime writing world and in the literary world. I really admire as, you know, Pulitzer Prize winners like um, Richard Rousseau, who's written of the Rust Belt, Northeast, Upper New York State. Louise Erdrich, um, who writes a lot about Native American issues. You may um, love medicine was her first book. Uh, and James McBride, who I think wrote Deacon King Kong, he's African-American and mixed race. But what these so-called serious writers have in common is they can be very funny and yet have much more serious topics than I might have. Um, you know, racism, uh, the Native American history, uh, down and out blue collar places. But they also have a lot of compassion and they will have slapstick scenes. So I figure if these Pulitzer Prize winners can have slapstick and depth. Why not? I try that. And there are actually, you know, a lot of mystery writers, including John Sanford. There's a lot of funny stuff in his books. Um, um, mystery writer in Minnesota now, Matt Goldman, is serious and funny. Matt Goldman, by the way, used to write for television, including the Seinfeld show. You might be interested in his books. Um, he's written both a series with three or four books with Neil Shapiro, a Jewish detective in the Scandinavian Midwest. Um, so I look, I look to those models and it, it's slow uh, sometimes. Sometimes you just have to do that 
um, seat of the pants writing where you just sit down and just let it go and then edit it into something that readers can get a, get a hold of. Hmm. Okay. But uh, this book, When the House Burns, I did a lot of writing. I, I mean, it was an upsetting time. The pandemic, the, the, it was a year of the presidential election, so the politics were brutal. Um, um, as, as I mentioned earlier, George Floyd had been killed. And I had to write about that angst in some way because, excuse me, all those situations can make anyone feel helpless. Even those who are involved, who are involved with addressing the, the circumstances. And I had to channel some of that through my detectives. Now, a lot of that got edited out, but as you noted in the beginning of the book, they, they are stressed about how do they do their, their jobs? They're coming out of the pandemic, but how do they do their jobs when the atmosphere is still rather negative? And I don't dwell on that a whole lot, but um, it's still kind of in the back of their minds. And I think some what I've heard is some of the readers appreciate that because it's it takes them out of that hole that was the pandemic, but acknowledges that there's still some scars. Uh, you've mentioned a couple times about your influences as a writer. Did any of them contribute to the story by giving you ideas for either... Uh, certain scenes or plot points or kind of how you like weave the story together? Not that specific. As I mentioned, I took classes from David Housewright and I got a lot of general ideas from him. And I did work with that first book with a writer um, who I was somewhat acquainted with, Aaron Hart, another Minnesota writer who has written a series of mysteries split between Minnesota and Ireland. She herself is of Irish heritage. And she actually um, went over very closely a draft of the first one, which was very rough and too long and suggested cuts and said, you have, I, apparently I like to invent characters. I confuse myself with Dickens. Not that I have his genius, but um, she said, you've got to cut some characters. And she really gave me a lot of help with the first one, as did my editor. My editor gave me a lot of help with the second one. And again, few too many characters, tighten it up a bit. So, but usually um, the events that happen are suggested by something that really happened or they come from my own twisted little mind. I remember in the first book, I used a true incident in Wisconsin where some, maybe it was somebody who'd robbed a convenience store, was going to escape in a motorboat on one of the many lakes but the police had a faster boat, so he jumped off and tried to swim for it. And he was in the water. I guess the police just thought, well, instead of us jumping in or maybe potentially drowning him with a hook, we'll just wait it out. And if he starts to sink, we'll, we'll get him. <laughs> the swim standoff, whatever you want to call it, went for an hour. So, I mean, you, you've kind of got to use something like that. Oh, yeah, um, definitely, definitely. So. So there, there are some real things like that that happen. It seems like certainly there are a lot of real. Well, I, I did go to a, a corn maze because when the house burns, show the nice cover again, is set in mid to late October, um, which is can be a gorgeous season in Minnesota and Wisconsin, but can also be cold, rainy, um, and it's also getting on to Halloween. <clears throat> Excuse me a second. Um, 
And I went to a corn maze. This is still during the shutdown. And it was late in the season. And I went during on a weekday and nobody was there. I mean, there was somebody running the, there's, there's a, by an apple orchard and because people would still come in and buy apples, but nobody was going out in the corn maze. And I guess I was expecting short corn, you know, that it maze mostly for kids, but the corn was 12 to 14 feet tall. It was bred to be, and you know, I, they gave me a map that made no sense at all. And I just had to put that in the book um, and have, you know, sort of um, one of the suspects, the beautiful, sexy widow, accidentally runs into Detective Jansen, who's there with his son uh, one day, and she's gotten disoriented. And that makes her vulnerable. And I'm not going to go into all the things that happen next. But um, so there were things like that. And one thing that they had at the Cormier is another one of these details that sometimes I think I invent things. And sometimes I think I don't invent at all. I just see stuff. Um, they had like monkey dolls at key intersections up on the corn. I thought that was both creepy, but of course, if you were a 12 year old boy running through there, you would try to take down those monkey dolls and throw them at each other, wouldn't you? Oh yes. So I have some rather upsetting 12 year olds running through there knocking people over. But I think there's, and also I think anytime you see a monkey that's not real, you think of Wizard of Oz, those flying exactly. monkeys that are up above your head. So I just, I just kind of had to use that. Yeah. This book, uh, recently released on February 14th, of course, the big question becomes, do we have a fourth one in the works? I thought that I would write a standalone. And, you know, a standalone means it's a one-time mystery. You don't have characters that show up again. Um, partly so I wouldn't get into a rut. You ask if style evolved. I think it has evolved, but it can also start to repeat itself. And I thought, well, I don't want to repeat myself. And I had an idea actually taken from a nonfiction book that we listened to when we had to drive instead of fly home from a conference because this was when the shutdown was over, but everybody suddenly at the conference was testing positive for COVID. So we listened to this very long book, um, actually on, on the opioid crisis and on the families behind it. And that gave me an idea about fractured families. So I started writing this book very intense, maybe even daring to be literary. So if you try to be literary, it usually falls on its face. You just write what you write. Otherwise it comes off as pretentious and fake. So I was messing with that and writing with it. And I'm not usually somebody who remembers dreams and I'm certainly not somebody who dreams about characters, but suddenly, Eric Chance and Deb Metzger came to me in my dreams, and it seemed like they were unhappy. It was kind of like, you know, you haven't resolved our sex lives. You know, you give us all these romantic leads, they come to nothing. Um, you know, Eric gets bored easily. Uh, you have to give him something to do. So next day, they're in the book. <laughs> so I see how it comes out. Nice. But okay. they, they inserted themselves. Because I think because, um, and in some ways I feel I can't take credit for them because where do these characters come from? Um, I hope I've made them uh, lively enough and intriguing enough and unexpected enough that they can keep going. Um, well, I certainly so hope so. At the, moment, they're, at the moment, they're back in it. 
and um, making trouble. You get to find out about Eric's days in the past when he had his guitar phase. Mm. So, you know, that teenage dream that you're going to be on the stage. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So his guitar phase comes back to bite him. So (laughs) that's about all I can say about that for the moment. But um, um, it's, I'm, I'm working on it, but sometimes, and this may be more my academic side, you know, mystery writers like to really get involved right away. There's a great advantage that because you build a readership and they want books, if not on a yearly basis, within about two years, which is about what I've been doing. But Sometimes my academic part, and this is, again, goes back to the rabbit hole research, says you don't know enough yet. So I do have to keep doing research, but I also have to say, that doesn't matter. I know people. People surprise me. I've got to put down, I've got to start writing about some of those things that people are surprising me about. I've got to set them, you know, and this is often how I get going if I'm stuck on plot. You have characters who are going to clash even characters who like each other and consider themselves allies. That happens a lot in When the House Burns. The other characters, the real estate agent, Karma, um, and a young man who has a crush on her, Rafe, are always clashing. Um, There's a real estate developer who seems so helpful with the detectives and with everyone else, up to a point. Why, what's at that point? So you start, so I really am sort of character driven. Though I say my characters are often bad drivers, but I get into what's going to upset these characters and what's going to make them desperate or needy. Mm. And those characters include the detectives. What might make them desperate or needy? Being trapped in a burning basement makes Detective Jansen desperate and needy. Being out on a construction, abandoned construction site at night knowing a murderer might be there and a murderer who's good with guns makes Detective Deb Metzger very nervous. Hmm. By the way, I mentioned that scene, um, but I want to say I don't like scenes in books where detectives know they should have backup, where they do something stupid and go all alone. That isn't that unusual. I usually have at least a reason why backup can't be there right away. Or it isn't so much that the detective's taking a giant heroic risk as, oh, you have to be a giant hero because suddenly circumstances have changed around you. I mean, I think a lot of writers do do that, but every once in a while you think, you know, it's like the horror movie trope where, why are you going into that house? You think there's a murder around, so you go to the darkest corner. Uh-huh. It's slightly odd note to be on, but um, I, I try to come up with characters. Um, and one more note about when the house burns. I mentioned a character named Rafe, who um, has British Anglo-Indian background, meaning some of his heritage comes from uh, India. And I had help with, a, with that character from someone I know with that kind of background. But in the first versions, he was just simply called Edward. And I couldn't do a thing with him. And then when I thought more about, well, I don't even know his last name yet. And I thought, I can't do anything with Edward. And I was looking at British names and Rafe, which is sometimes spelled like the way we spell Ralph. I thought, I've got to use Rafe. There you go. Now he's 
Ah, okay. All right. Well, uh, Priscilla, uh, thank you so much for joining me. I really do appreciate it. And for the folks at home, if, uh, if you want to learn uh, more about the author, you go to PriscillaPatton.com. Priscilla, as you normally spell it, P-A-T-O-N. Get your copy of When the House Burns. And yeah, you don't necessarily have to get the other two books, but it'll be good if you did. And of course, leave reviews, follow the socials, and, and do whatever you can to interact with the author. It's very important as they're trying to get their, get their name out there and kind of spread the word about the works. So Priscilla, thanks again, and I look forward to the next conversation. Well, thank you so much, Max. Hey, this is singer-songwriter and mental health advocate Stephanie Mathias. Be sure to check out my single Hero Side, available on all platforms now, and listen to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best indie artists. Joining me now to talk about her recently released second book, The Fifth Daughter of Thorn Ranch, author Julia Brewer-Daly is here. Julia, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me. This is going to be a lot of fun. Thank you, Max, for the opportunity. All right. So why don't we start by just kind of taking us on a walk through the story of the second book? Okay. Well, uh, an heiress to the largest ranch in Texas stumbles upon an ancient people living on her property, and she's actually captured by them. And she's she has to decide whether she is going to be able to escape and return home or learn to enjoy where she is at the moment. <laughs> That's a good story. That's a very good story. And I'm actually just starting to read it uh, right now. So uh, so your main character is Emma Rosales. She is the heiress to the Thorn, which is the largest property and ranch. And for reference sake, this is one million acres. Is there actually a ranch in Texas that big? Yes, King Ranch really? was a million acres until just recently. Now it's only 850,000 acres, but I actually visited King Ranch so I could get an idea of how immense that property is. A million acres, most people can't understand what a million acres looks like, but it would cover four counties. It's larger than some states, especially on the East Coast, and it's larger than... This is Angelina Singer, author of the Upper World series, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout, the best podcast for independent artists. And New York and L.A. combined. Jeez. Huge. Wow, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Man, there there is just so much to uh, to watch uh, talk about here. So I want to start with Emma as as a character. Now she is 22 years old, so very very young, and basically she is set to take over the Thorn. Uh, this is going to, this is being passed down to her. She's in charge of a very very long to do list. How is she at being the heiress? Like, is this a is this a role that she wants to have? Well, the Thorn is passed down through generations of these feisty women they're all only daughters and the land and the stewardship of it really form a sacred unbreakable bond for these women and emma the fifth generation to own this ranch she's feeling a little ambivalent you know about it she's gone to college she's uh, gotten a veterinarian de degree and she wants to think about maybe a small animal practice you know in a in a little village or a little town in in texas and her mother's assuring her that this has never happened that if you own a million acres you don't have any other choices you're going to have to take over this property and operate it. So she is supposed to take over the ranch, but 
she decides she's going to take a long journey out onto the ranch and be by herself and mm. try to make up her mind whether this is truly going to happen to her. Ah, yeah, because I I saw a reference to I guess there's like sections of the ranch that really no one's ever like ever like been to. They're totally unexplored regions. What role does that play in the story? Well, it's a, a major part of the story, and actually the landscape could be one of the characters because this property is so vast, and there are so many mountainous areas there. It's on the border of Mexico and the United States, um, which the ranch was as one of the Spanish land grants many years ago. And there are caverns as deep as the Grand Canyon there, so it's very easily... Uh, disguised all of these caves and the the reason I got the idea for these caves on the property is we visited Mesa Verde National Park which is actually in Colorado but in the front of the book you'll see a photo of those caves and it looks like somebody built condos in the side of the mountain and if they were facing away and in these deep caverns you wouldn't be able to see them and when we visited those caves I asked you know what happened to the people here and they don't know they don't know if famine or warfare or, you know, sickness, what happened to cause these people to leave, leave their homes there in Colorado. And I just thought, well, maybe they came to Texas. And so I thought, you know, if, if a si a ranch, the size of the thorn is a million acres, people could be living on your property and you wouldn't know it. Wow. I, I gotta say, I did not see this one coming because just reading the description, I kind of thought, oh, this will be like a family secret or something like that. But no, it's actually a secret group of people that no one knew was ever there. Did you base this on any real life people? Well, there are uncontacted tribes still in the United States, you know, who don't want to be contacted. And so, yes, I, I read the history of a lot of these tribes. And like I said, you know, in Colorado, where it, it might have been the Mayan culture uh, there in those caves. And it's all very much documented that this this really did happen, but we don't think about it in today's world and, and that anybody could live on your property. And I had some book clubs that I've talked to say, oh, well, wouldn't you have drones and wouldn't you know every inch of your property? And I said, we own a small ranch in Texas and we haven't even been to all, all the places on that ranch. So if, if you are trying to stumble around a ranch the size of New York and LA combined, then there are definitely places that you've never been. That's going to need a lot of drones. That's going to need a lot of drones. <laughs> <laughs> now, was this your original idea for the book? Yes, you know, I, I was so enamored when we moved to Texas with these large generational ranches. You know, some have been on the same ranch, the same property for five and six generations. And that just really intrigued me. And then I thought about those caves being on the property and different people living on the property. And so it came to me that, that this would be a very interesting story, uh, something that I haven't uh, read, you know, 
Yellowstone is so popular now on television. And I had not seen it when I wrote this book, but I've had a lot of people say that they love this book because it's all about the women, you know, kind of flipping the tables on ranches. You think of only the cowboys and you don't think about women owning these ranches, but but there are women who own these ranches, whether they were handed down from their own parents or whether they married someone and the ranch became theirs uh, after the the man died. But um, it, it's, it's fascinating how these ranches are handed down for so many generations. And I just hope that they can continue to be because we see all these subdivisions and all of these ranches being split up in so many different ways. And it's really sad when you see the landscape change so much. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I know you mentioned visiting the King Ranch. Did you uh, check out any other ranches or talk to the people to kind of get some background for the book? Yes, here where we live, it was um, a village that was settled by the Germans back in the 1800s. And so there are lots of large ranches here. They're not a million acres, but they might be a thousand acres or 2000 acres. So there are large ranches all around us. And I know a lot of the people who own those ranches and, and how they go through what they do to try to keep those ranches intact. It's very difficult to make ranches pay for themselves these days. You know, it's very valuable property. And a lot of our young people, you know, are going to the big cities to work and they want to go and do something else and they don't want to do the hard, hard labor that you have to do to keep these ranches and, you know, running. Yeah, we actually have the same problem here because where I live, there's a lot of farms and they're having the same problem because the, you know, the kids don't want to take over. They want to go on and to do bigger and like better things. How is that changing like uh, ranch culture? Do they kind of see like the end is coming? Well, I think that's the fear of all of these parents and grandparents that that's going to going to happen, and and it is scary for them because they have lived on this property forever and they just don't want to see it go away, and the and the kids just some are continuing the the culture, but some are not, and so they have to determine whether they're going to sell the ranch or pass it down to the kids and let them sell it later. Does that factor into the story at all? Uh, very much so. I think when Emma Emma goes missing, um, they consider this. This has never happened before. They've always had an heir heiress to the to the ranch, and so they they think. What's going to happen? What's going to happen now to to our property? They say that the the land was you know, a God to them and they've worshiped this land for so long. And so the, uh, I, I put in there that the grandmother and the mother are very distraught, not only over the loss of, of their child, but for the loss of what could happen, you know, to this ranch. Hmm. Would you say Emma is a particularly strong character? I think she's very strong. I've had a couple of people tell me that she seemed too good to be true. You know, she can do everything. She can outshoot, outride, outfish, you know, every guy on the ranch. But, you know, that's the that's the traditions that I've seen here with these strong women running these ranches and living on these ranches. They have to be strong and very good at everything they do. And they actually can do all of those things. And I've I've seen that. And so that influenced her character. 
I want to ask a little bit about the cover, because as you mentioned, this was a picture taken from um, one of the caves. Did you have a lot to kind of go through? Did you have a, like any, any kind of trouble picking which picture you want to kind of lead the book? Well, Domini Dragoon is the cover artist, and she's just fabulous. She was living in San Francisco when I found out about her, and she did both of my books, the first book, No Names to Be Given, and now this book, The Fifth Daughter of Thorn Ranch. And she just really captured the essence of a ranch with a young woman riding out on horseback and the vastness of the property and the caves, peering out from the caves. So I think she really captured and and a beautiful sunset, which we see a lot of, especially on these flat uh, ranches. You see gorgeous sunrises and sunsets. So I was very pleased with the cover. Mm-hmm. Now, um, as you just mentioned, uh, this is your second book and your first book, uh, No Names uh, to Be Given. Given that you went through the writing process once already, did this kind of help with the second book? It really did. You know, it took me a lot longer to write the the uh, first book than it did the second. Um, I had kept that story. It had a little of my memoir running through it. I'm an adopted child from a maternity home in New Orleans. And so those protagonists in the first book meet at that maternity home to relinquish their babies for adoption. And so I had that story in my mind for many, many years. And I just decided to begin writing it when we retired and moved to Texas. And it took longer. And then this book, I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, NaNoWriMo, but it's the National Novel Writing Month in November, where you take a challenge to write 50,000 words in the month of November. That's 1,667 words a day. That's a lot, especially with uh, holidays dropped in. You know, you have to double up your word count if you're going to be out of town and things like that. It was a real challenge. But I took the challenge and I actually wrote 50,000 words last year in the month of November. And that at least got the words on paper. You know, this novel is about 85,000 words. And so it, it got me a long way uh, down that road of, of word count. And I could go back and have something to edit. I've had a couple of friends who have also done that too. And it's definitely a challenge, especially like you said, you got the holidays kind of getting in the way of things and you know, you have a job of course, probably. So yeah, doing like doing 2000 words a day is tough. It really is. And I had, I'm an English major. So, you know, I want to write a paragraph and go back and edit the paragraph. And I want to, you know, look back over it the next day when I start work and things like that. And you can't do that in that challenge. You have to just forget about punctuation. Don't worry about any errors. Just get the words on paper and you can edit it later. Yeah, I can't do that. I cannot <laughs> do that. I, I am way too anal retentive to be able to just let yeah. mistakes go. It will drive you crazy at first, but then you get into the flow. Nice. When it was all said and done, did you go back and have to make like a lot of uh, changes? Well, I always get hooked on editors. I'll have five or six editors go through uh, my books, go through my work when I get the manuscript completed. And everyone has something different, you know, that they want you to change or they want you to 
you know, uh, work on. And this book, because it has Native Americans in it, as well as Latina women, I wanted to have sensitivity readers. You know, that's become um, very important for our work, especially for writing about different cultures. So I had two sensitivity readers and they did a very thorough job of letting me know if I was getting stereotypical you know with any of the um, phrases or or any of my words in the in the manuscript so that was most helpful yeah I've heard about those actually I guess they, I, I guess that that's kind of a new thing where people are really they want to make sure that they're not incorporating any like you said uh, stereotypes there's no cultural appropriation happening here did this really change a lot of the book that you had them involved not a lot but just uh, different phrases you know that I had no idea that that would be offensive to anyone and and um, and so that that was helpful for them to point that out to me. You know, I'm a, a Southern woman, a, a Caucasian Southern woman, and I did not want to have anything in there that would cause anybody any grief. I wanted to make sure that it was a clean manuscript and that anyone who read it, no matter what their culture, that they would not feel offended by anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. How about when this was all said and done? Uh, are you the kind of person that very easily hands it all over to someone else? Or do you kind of say, wait, let's go one more time, one more revision? You know, I feel just like Eudora Welty, who was a Mississippian as well. When she used to, you know, back in her day, you had to send the physical manuscript to New York, to the publishing houses. And she she would say as soon as she dropped it into the mailbox that she wanted to reach back in and pull it back out and continue to work on it. So I thought, well, I'm in good company if Eudora Welty felt that way. So certainly I always feel that way. I always think it's never finished. How about the rough draft to the finished draft? Do the two have anything in common? They really did. I don't change the developmental part of the the edit too much. Uh, just a, a real good cleanup, maybe moving some things around. I know in my first book, um, the editors really liked one character more than the other, so they wanted me to lead with her. You know, some things like that where you're just pretty much moving chapters around or are leading with one personality rather than another. I think in this book, The Fifth Daughter, we did, I, I had a lot of chapters at first of just Emma, and we did intersperse um, her mother's chapters so that you didn't wait, you know, until half the book to, to find out more about the mother figure. And so we we did a multiple point of view and and we did those back and forth instead of waiting until later in the book. All right. This book takes place, of course, in Texas. And as you mentioned, uh, you are Texan. You grew up uh, in Mississippi. How did the upbringing kind of influence the story? Well, we have been just overwhelmed with the response of people uh, to us here. It, it Texas is not in the South. I know it's West, but they do have a wonderful hospitality here. And I always laugh and say, you know, Texas is kind of like a big theme park. You know, everything that people expect to see from the cacti to the people riding horses to, you know, the kids in the 4-H, uh, raising the sheep and the goats. And, you know, it's, it's all here. 
And especially in the little town where we live that was settled by the Germans so many years ago, it's just a very quaint place, except for the 50 wineries that are now here. I think we're going to surpass Napa. And so the tourists have found us and we can't go downtown on the weekends because it's too busy. But other than that, it's, it's been a great place to, to live. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One thing I'm really curious about is if um, there are any like stereotypes ab- about Texas that kind of find their way into books. I think so. And I think that's what people have commented on about this book is, you know, they expect ranches to be um, a man's domain. And for me to kind of flip that on its head and make it all about the women uh, and the men are in secondary characters. I think that has surprised a lot of people because we do think of stereotypes when we think of of the, the ranches here. Okay, so uh, shifting gears here, I want to talk about, along with being a twice-published author, you also run your own podcast, the Authors Over 50 podcast. How did this one get started, and what's it about? Well, you know, I always have seen all of these awards for under 30 or under 40. And that's wonderful because I think the young people who can accomplish so much is fabulous. But I never saw anything for over 50. And when I became a part of the author's community, I thought somebody needs to celebrate the authors who write their first book after the age of 50. And so I just decided, well, I don't see that anywhere. So I'm going to have to start it myself. And I took a a course with a, a coach and learned how to do the podcasting. And it has just been a tremendous outpouring from all of these authors. I just started the podcast in March and I've already recorded 77 podcast. I'm recording four every week and launching two every week. So there are a lot of us out there. I've I've been so amazed by the quality of the writers who are publishing their first book after 50. There are doctors and attorneys and MBAs, and there's a Reese Witherspoon pick and lots of New York Times bestsellers. And it's just been really a joy to get to know them. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm amazed because a good chunk of the authors that I have on this show are over 50 because they, you know, they have their job and they work it and they retire and they decide, you know what, I'm going to write that book. I've been putting it off for all these years. How do you find your guests? A lot of publicists send them to me and then I work and it's word of mouth. Once one of them um, is on the podcast and they tell friends of theirs that they know, because we all in the writer's community are so generous with each other. We share lots of tips and, and lots of ways to get publicity because, you know, that's one thing that writers just don't like to do. We don't like to promote ourselves. I can promote you and your book, but I don't want to sing my own praises. So that's more difficult all right you know it's been a while since, uh since i spoke to another uh podcaster so i'm curious first episode what was it like for you it's pretty terrifying you know when you start speaking into a mic and you hear this this accent that i have it's it's, it's pretty intimidating so i chose someone that i know and i knew that would be very easy to interview. She was one of my first editors and I chose her for my first podcast. So it made it uh, more friendly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can remember the first time I started doing the show. I thought, is that, is that what I sound like? Is that what people hear when I talk? 
Yes, I feel the same way. You know, everybody says, oh, we love your Southern accent. And I'll say, well, I thought I had lost it by now. And they'd say, no, you definitely have not. (laughs) Nope, definitely not. That's so cool. I'm curious as to where this podcast is going. Do you you see this continuing on? Thought that we would have the podcast fade. You know, that's what I hear is podcasters start up. There are probably a million podcasts out here. And we start up and about after the 10th podcast, you know, we say, eh, that was fun while it lasted. But after 77, I don't know if I can stop telling people that, you know, I will help promote them. So I don't know where it's going to go in the future. You know, I think you have to have so many uh, subscribers and so many downloads and all of this to even think about monetizing it. But, you know, it's really been a gift of love because it does cost a, a lot of money if you have a sound engineer every month and you're doing as many podcasts as I'm doing. It really costs a good bit of money to have that taken care of. What would you say is the best part of doing your own show? I think having a a visit with everyone, you know, I feel like they're sitting here in my living room in Texas and we get to chat and I get to ask them pretty much the same questions. You know, uh, some of my favorite podcasts have the same uh, questions for all of their guests. So you get to hear uh, the responses from these different guests, but pretty much the same questions. And that's kind of what I do. I start out with the question, what took you so long to write your first book? And I end with, do you have advice for writers over 50? So I get to hear, you know, from all these spectacular guests, those same questions and, and hear their different answers. Okay, then, then I'm going to ask your first question. What did take you so long to write your first book? Well, like most of the podcast guests that I have, life. I was a single parent for a long time, you know, bringing up my my children, and I was always curious about being adopted, but I didn't know that I wanted to search and find my birth family, and when I started having my own family, then I said, you know, I want to know something about our health records because they don't leave any of that with you if you're adopted, and so I went to New Orleans to the Bureau of Records and petitioned them because back then, a Napoleonic law was still on the books that said that a natural child, an adopted child can inherit from their natural parents. Well, you can't inherit from somebody that you don't know. So that opened the records and I received my original birth certificate. And it was 40 years later before I decided to write this story down. I was a adjunct professor at a college there in Mississippi, and I was able to take some writing courses as part of our compensation. And I just started writing some of these chapters that actually ended up in that first book. So when you began writing the chapters, did you initially intend to publish? It was a more just kind of for yourself. Yeah, they say a lot of writing is therapy. So maybe I was trying to figure out, you know, my feelings about being an adopted child. And and uh, we had to stand and read before the class, you know, and, and everybody thought that I should continue these chapters and, and write a book. Yeah, I could not do that. Definitely <laughs> not. Definitely not. Uh, does being an adopted child, does that really factor into the new book at all? Probably I got most of that out in the first book, but 
Um, it always is with me. It's always a part of me. I always see life through those lenses, you know, and I always think about what makes a family. Um, how do you create a family? Can you have family from those who aren't blood relatives? And the answer is obviously yes. You know, there are a hundred million Americans in the U.S. who have adoption in their immediate families. So there are many, many children, adults, um, and people who adopted parents who are adopting children who are out there. And it's, it's really remarkable to think that we can create a family from, from others. Hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, back to the podcast for a little bit. What would you say is the overall message of the show? The message is just to celebrate those of us who have written our first book after the age of 50 and, and to, be able to help them promote themselves because when you're over 50, not everybody thinks that you're going to have too many more books in you, you know? And um, so I, I want them to be able to tell their stories and to show how really remarkable they are. I've interviewed people in their seventies, eighties and nineties, and they're still turning out beautiful work. So I think writing is like swimming and we can do it the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. Any guests that really stand out in your mind? Well, one was a toxicologist, uh, a very prominent toxicologist, I think, in Boston. And she writes about poisoning people as an assassin for the United States government. So I just found that to be very intriguing. And her book is called Queen of Poisons. And I thought that tied very closely in with her profession. And I was so fascinated. I was asking her, well, how do you have poisons that aren't detectable in someone's body? And she said, are you happy in your marriage? You know, she was asking me questions about it. So it was really funny. I mean, they say, right, what you know, but I don't know about that. That's a little much. <laughs> I know. I thought it was just fascinating. That is so cool. It's so cool. All right. All right, Julia. Well, I think the, I think the big question, of course, that we all want to know is, is there another book in the works? Well, actually, this this book, The Fifth Daughter, is being shopped around Hollywood to studios, and they have a script writer who is, is um, taking it and going to meet with a producer in the near future. So they may want me to go back to the first daughter of Thorn Ranch and come forward and do all the, you know, series that would be a great streaming series. And if, if so, that would be my next work. If not, I might do a murder mystery. With, with, uh, uh poisons, right? <laughs> Poison. There we go. Yeah, we gotta do that. We gotta do that. Okay, okay. All right. This, this, uh, this is really big. So your book is being shopped around right now. Possibility of it uh, being made. Uh, any more details that we can get about this? Well, my husband says don't get your hopes up because you know Hollywood can move very quickly or very slowly, and we've been told that you know they can buy the rights to it and put it on a shelf for twenty years. And I told the agent, I said, I don't have twenty years. I don't want you pushing me down the red carpet in my wheelchair. So you know, let's get a move on this. If it's going to happen, let's get it to happen. Okay. Uh, who would you like to see play Emma? Oh wow. That's that's really difficult but but for the 
the pitch deck, we had to come up with all of these actors and place them in there. You know, I know right away that I'd want Eva Longoria to play Josie. The younger actors are more difficult because I don't know them as well. Mm. But I would, I would love to see Eva Longoria as Josie. All right. Well, I certainly hope this happens because, as you said, a lot of times you hear a book, it's optioned, and then nothing happens with it. So definitely hoping that we get to see this thing on Netflix or Hulu or wherever, as long as it happens. Julia, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate this. And for the folks at home, if you want to learn more about this wonderful writer and check out her works, you go to juliadaily.com, go to Spotify, look up the Authors Over 50 podcasts, 77 episodes, many, many more to come. And definitely looking forward to the next conversation for the next book. Thank you so much, Max. This is Angelina Singer, author of the Upper World series, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout, the best podcast for independent artists. And that brings this episode to a close. Thanks to everyone for listening, and be sure to follow the show on Facebook at Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram at Citywide Max. You can reach me at citywidemax at yahoo.com to suggest a guest or submit music for the Blackout Collection playlist. You can find the show wherever you check out your favorite podcasts. And new episodes are aired every Saturday at 10 p.m. EST on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.